I came across a list of the greatest, the largest gatherings of humans in world history. So, this is it. 2013, there was a Hindu pilgrimage in India that occurs every 30 years, 30 million people. 2014, there was a Muslim pilgrimage in Iraq that commemorated the death of one of the grandsons of the Prophet Muhammad, 17 million people. Uh, In 69, there was the funeral of an Indian statesman and uh, well-known religious leader, 15 million people. In uh, 1989, the funeral of the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was the religious leader of Iran at the time, 10 million. 2015, uh, Pope Francis visited the Philippines, 6 million. Uh, 1995 was the World Youth Day, also in the Philippines, where Pope John Paul II uh, led a mass with 5 million people. And then number seven on the list was the Chicago Cubs parade that happened in Chicago, in, in, uh, in downtown Chicago on, uh, on Friday. And I've got to be honest, it is with serious mixed emotions that I'm telling you that uh, the celebration of the Cubs winning the World Series was the seventh largest gathering of people in one place in the history of the world. What do all of those gatherings have in common? What do all of those events have in common? They're all religious gatherings. Is that a little too soon? Is that a little too close to home, maybe? Don't worry. I know I was the reason why we canceled prayer on Wednesday night to watch the, the final game. So you can... Uh, yeah, you can, te- you can tease me as well. But what I want to do today is actually I want to tell you about a gathering of people that far eclipses every single one that I've read. And it's a gathering of people that has been happening since the beginning of time, a gathering of people from every tribe and from every nation and from every language. It's a gathering of people that, that we are a part of every time we gather on a Sunday, every time we get together on a Wednesday night to pray, every time we meet in homes. We are part of this incredible gathering that is happening before the throne of God. I want to convince you today, I hope I'm able to convince you today, that God's greatest delight, that God's greatest desire is when His people get together in His presence and we, de- and we declare praises to his son. I want to hopefully convince you today that church, local church, what we do on a Sunday morning is near and dear to God's heart. It's a foretaste of heaven. And heaven, as far as I understand, is the greatest manifestation of the presence of God. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And to do that, we are, as, uh, as Chris mentioned, we are uh, uh, landing, finishing today in our series through the book of Exodus. And so I would like you to turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9. I know that sounds a bit strange. Just follow, uh, follow along with me. Nehemiah, chapter 9. I'd like you to turn there. And what, what I want to do today is kind of spend half of the message this morning summarizing some of the incredible truths that we have uh, 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 spoken about and learned together in this series through the book of Exodus. Um, and then as we're going to go from there, the whole point of the series was this phrase, into his glory. The people of God were being taken out of slavery and were coming into God's presence. The presence of God is the culmination of the Exodus story, and that's what we're going to look at today. And the reason why I've chosen Nehemiah 9 as my text is because this is a moment in Israel's history where they have been in exile for 70 years, they've now returned to Jerusalem, they've rebuilt the walls, and they are returning their hearts back to the Lord. And they do so by remembering God's incredible faithfulness in delivering the, the, the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery more than a thousand years earlier. 
And we're going to pick it up together in Nehemiah chapter 9 and the second half of verse 5. The leaders say to the people, stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And the people respond with this, blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is, all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. I'm going to take a few moments every now and then just to stop as we read through this text together and make a few comments. And I want to start off by saying how important worship is in us coming into or accessing or pressing into the presence of God, however we want to word that. Corporate worship especially, what we did this morning that is so vital in terms of us accessing or becoming familiar or becoming aware of the presence of God. Jesus, in John chapter 4, teaches us how to worship. He says, firstly, God is looking for a community of people. God is looking for a gathering of people who will firstly worship the Lord in spirit, in the Holy Spirit, is essentially what Jesus is saying. What he's, what he's teaching us is there needs to be this expectation, this anticipation of tangibly accessing and experiencing the manifest presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit when we worship. That needs to be your expectation when you walk into this auditorium or this hall on a Sunday morning for worship. That you, together with your family, are going to access and come into the tangible and manifest presence of the Lord. But the second thing Jesus teaches us is not only that we are to worship in the Holy Spirit, but we are to worship in truth, which means that the words that we sing and the words that we say and the lives that we live needs to line up with the reality of who God is. We sang this morning, we sang, uh, uh, um, every knee shall bow before the lion and the lamb. Every knee shall bow before him. That's a great song, one of my absolute favorites. But it's so easy for us to sing that song for others. Oh, yes, Lord, I pray that my, my unsafe uh, family member or, or my unsafe work colleague, that their knee would bow before the lion and the lamb. But I want to challenge us, when we are singing these songs... We need to be asking ourselves, is that true of me? Has your knee bowed before the, the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ? Has every area in your life been submitted to his authority and his lordship? You see, what happens when, when we worship God in spirit and in truth, when we anticipate the, the, the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit and we, and we come with hearts that are seeking to, to match the words that we're saying, God does a remarkable thing, and it actually happened this morning. God takes our worship ministry, which is lifted up to him, and he turns it back on us and begins to minister over us. That's often when God begins to speak and move and minister prophetically. And we saw that so beautifully today. A number of times as we sang these songs of adoration to the Lord, the Lord turned that, that praise and adoration that we were lifting up to him back on us. And we had a few prophetic contributions. Colleen sang a, a, a prophetic song, and, and James did as well, and Debs did as well. God speaking to us prophetically. You see, when we worship in spirit and in truth, we begin to see God. And when we see God, faith begins to rise in our hearts. And that's what happened with the people of God. 
Before, they, before we, we, we come to the book of Exodus, the book of Genesis describes time and time again how Abraham and, his, and, and all of his descendants got to the, had the opportunity to see God and faith began to rise in their hearts that they were going to be this people that through them, God was going to bless the nations of the world. Look at verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. And named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you. And you made a covenant, not a contract. You made a covenant with him to give him his descendant, to give with him, to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Tikbites, and Mosquitobites. You have, I just thought of that right now. It's probably a really old joke, but you have kept, I promise I didn't plan to say that. That's not in my notes. You have kept, Your promise, because, listen to this, you have kept your promise. Why? Because you are righteous. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You could just as easily say, God, you have kept your promise because you are faithful. We sang it today. That's why we can be a people of faith. Being a people of faith isn't because there's anything virtuous in us. Being a people of faith means we are trusting in the absolute assurance that God is the God who does what he says. And that's why we can be the people of faith that we are called to be. But you and I know that in times of delay, when things, when we have to wait, that's when that truth gets tested, isn't it? That's why the writer of Hebrews says, it is with faith and patience that we inherit the promise. You see, we all know about the faith. I think we all, as Christians, understand that there needs to be a faith component to us inheriting the things that God calls us to. But where you and I struggle, well, if you're anything like me, this is where I struggle. It's with the waiting. It's with the patience. It's with the delay. And it's in those seasons that God wants us to to remember that he is faithful. And this is what happened to the people of Israel. God had spoken this promise a hundred, hundreds of years earlier that they were going to be the people through which God was going to bless the nations. But things were not looking very good. Look at verse 9. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials. And all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they could pass through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. Why did God rescue Israel? Was it because of their suffering? Yes, partly. Was it because there were people in need? Yes, partly. But the main reason why God rescued his people was because he had made a covenant promise with them. They were his and he was theirs. And that's why he rescued them. And Exodus 19 describes this beautiful picture where God uh, is summing up this beautiful covenant that he's made with his people. And he says, he says I, swo- I, I, I carried you on eagle's wings. I swooped down like an eagle to rescue you, to bring you to myself. And, and, I, and he actually says that, I carried you to myself. You see, it's a beautiful picture. Those, that, that, that simple sentence describes so simply yet so powerfully the greatest intent of God's heart, and that is to be close 
and near and intimate with the people that he has created. God's greatest intent, God's greatest desire is to gather his people to himself and for us to enjoy his intimacy and his closeness and his nearness. You see, that's why God called Moses. And that's why God, in a similar way, has called you and I as as believers in him, you and I who enjoy his intimacy and his closeness, to go and to share this good news with other people. But so often, you and I respond exactly how Moses responds. Who am I, Lord, that I should go? I want you to think for a moment. The, 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 The person or group of people that intimidate you or, 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 or overwhelm you the most when you think about sharing the gospel with them. We learned a couple of weeks when our friend Jody was visiting that in, in Acts chapter 10, when Peter was called by the Lord to go and to socialize with the Gentile, he said these words, Lord, surely not me. I can't go and do that. If you are Peter, I want to ask you, who is your Gentile? Who is your Gentile? That person or group of people that that, that causes you to say, Lord, not me, I can't do this. Well, God's answer to Peter, God's answer to Moses, and God's answer to you and to me is exactly the same. He says this, I'm calling you, not because you're anything special, not because you have certain gifts or talents, but I'm calling you, I need you to go because I will be with you. And if we don't throw that question of who am I at the Lord, often what we do is we say, well, Lord, then who are you? Who are you that that has this power to to call me and to commission me to go and and to preach the gospel? And we see in Exodus chapter 3, God beautifully and powerfully displays his name, reveals his name to Moses. Out of the burning bush, he says, I am who I am. And then he says to Moses, he says, Moses, I want you to watch and see. I'm going to to display the meaning of my name by moving in power and and acting in power into world history. The rest of the the book of Exodus, Exodus 4 onwards, is essentially a description of the name of the Lord. And I want to say this, friends. God still acts the same way. The way we get to know God is to see how God moves in and through our lives. We cannot know God outside of experiencing God. We mustn't be afraid of this idea of experiencing the presence of the almighty creator. We mustn't be afraid of that. Culture has taught us to be nervous of of experiencing God. And I want to say, no, that's not God's. That that is not God's heart. Verse 12. By day, you led them with the pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way that they were to take. Can I just say this as as a little aside? That sentence there. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they are to to take. Can I say, as an eldership team, husbands and wives, that verse alone best describes our heart in leading church in the city. We don't always get it right. We make mistakes along the way. But as best as we are able as a team, we are trusting to see where the Lord is encamped, And when he moves, we move with him. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made made known to them your holy Sabbath 
and gave the commandments, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their, fir- in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and to take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. They were rescued, they were liberated. God was with them every single step of the way. He drew them close as his treasured possession. He set them apart as a holy nation. He said to them that they would be a kingdom of priests who would go and take God's heart to the nations of the world. Every step of the way, God was providing and nurturing and caring for. He was cultivating this relationship of love and trust in which it was easy to obey God. But look at what what happened, verse 16. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember, failed to remember. We've been speaking about that week after week, haven't we? Don't forget what God has done. They failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked. And then their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return from their slavery. From their slavery. A, a, a rather unimpressive bunch of people. But I love how the next sentence starts. But. But. For me, but is one of the most powerful words in all of Scripture. So often we see you know, this is who we are. We're, 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 we're dead. We're, we're, we're sinners. But. For God. But, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That sentence is a, is a summary sentence of this incredible moment in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34 where, where Moses cries out to God. He says, God, show me your glory. And God says, all right, Moses, because you are my friend, I'm going to show you my glory. But, but what I need to do is I need to place you into a, a, a cleft in the rock. And I'm going to put my hand upon you, and I'm going to pass by you. And as I pass by, I'm going to lift my hand, and I'm going to allow you to catch a glimpse of me from behind. And in that moment, Exodus 34, verse 5, it describes this incredible scene. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, with Moses. And proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Friends, what a time in our nation to be reminded of who God is. This is a a prayer I've been praying over our nation for the last few weeks. The Lord, God, would you remind this nation that you are Lord. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate God. God, would would you display your compassion over our nation in this time? Compassionate God, gracious and forgiving, long suffering. What an incredible time to be reminded of who God is. But what this, what this, what this passage describes is, is this incredible scene. That, that glimpse that Moses got of, of, of the back of God meant that when Moses came down the mountain, he was so filled with the, with the radiance of God's presence that he had to wear a veil over his head because his face was shining so brightly. He saw a glimpse of God's 
behind. And I don't mean to be crass when I say that, but that's literally what the, well, that's literally what the Hebrew means. That, li- that is literally what the Hebrew means. He got a glimpse of the back of God and the radiance of God filled Moses. You know what? In the new covenant, we don't just see a glimpse of God from behind. We see Jesus face to face. John chapter 1, we've seen the glory of God, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 2 Corinthians 3, we aren't like Moses, Paul writes, but instead with unveiled faces, with nothing separating us from God, with unveiled faces, we, we look upon, we behold the glory of God and are not being transformed from one degree of glory to a lesser degree of glory, but 2 Corinthians tells us from one degree of glory to a greater degree of glory. If Moses was standing here today, if I was Moses, which I'm not, you know, I'd probably be wearing my, my bathrobe and my, my little kind of towel around my head, I was, you know, like you would see him in a, in a children's Bible, he would be standing here and saying, do you guys get this? You guys get this, what God, what Jesus has done in the new covenant. When I was alive, when I was here on earth, I got a glimpse of God and God's radiance and glory so filled me, but yet there was, there was, there was laws and rituals and animal sacrifices that separated me from God and I only could get a glimpse. But you, you and me in the new covenant, Moses would say, is, is everything has been removed in our access to God. Jesus has paid the price once and for all. There's no man that stands between you and God. There's no self-righteousness that stands between you and God. You and I have access totally into God's presence. Verse 18, therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought us out of Egypt. Look at God's abounding faithfulness. Or when they committed awful awful blasphemies, he's slow to anger. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine them on their way. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out nor their feet become swollen. I want to ask the question, what distinguishes God's people from every other person on the planet? What distinguishes God's people from every other person on the planet? Is it like it was in the Old Testament where there's something physical about us? In the Old Testament, God insisted that every male circumcise himself and his son as a physical sign that they were the people of God. Is that the case today? And I'm, I don't mean to be weird and ask that question, but, but no, that's not the case today. There's no physical mark on us to separate us from the world. Is it some sort of external behavior? Is it because we behave a certain way? Is it because we sound a certain way that people can, can say, well, they behave more holy, therefore they are the people of God? Well, Friends, it's not like the Old Testament where there's, there was this external set of rules and regulations that governed the people how, how, how God's people should live. We spoke a couple of weeks about how, how God's law is not an external inter, to, to in, it's internal expressing itself outward. So what is the distinguishing mark of God's people? And I would say it's simply this. 
the absolute truth and reality that God is always with us. That's what is the distinguishing mark of God's people. The absolute assurance and reality that God is always with us. Three things we've learned from the book of Exodus that happen in the presence of God. Very quickly, three things that happen in the presence of God. The first thing is we see who God is. When God is present, there is revelation of God that comes. There's, uh, there's endless examples in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3 is probably one of the, the most common. God, the glory of God falls down upon a bush so that the bush is not burnt up. And Moses comes into the presence of God. He's intrigued. He draws close to God's presence. And in that place of God's manifest presence, he reveals himself to Moses. I am who I am. When God is present, there is revelation of who God is. When God is present, secondly, there is his manifest power. Exodus, again, time and time, God God shows his people that he is powerful over kings and kingdoms. He is powerful over all creation. He is powerful over every false god. His name is the name above every name. When God is present, we have revelation. When God is present, we have power. When God is present, we behold or see his glory. His glory speaks of his, 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 the fullness of his beauty, the fullness of his manifest presence, the fullness of his, of his magnificence. In God's presence, we see these things. Now, the reason I'm telling you that is because I, I want to bring some application to, to why this is so important. In Exodus chapter th- uh, 33, Moses says this to God. If you are pleased with me, would you teach me your ways? The ways of God are God's heart, God's intent, God's desire, no matter the circumstances. Every single circumstance, God has a way. There are the ways of God that God wants to move in a myriad of circumstances. And Moses says, Lord, teach me your ways. And then verse 14, it says, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I want you to think right now. Right now, every single one of you, I want you to do this, please. Think about a situation or a circumstance that you are facing right now. Maybe you're standing in faith for a, for a healing or a miracle. Maybe there's some issue of health that you are struggling with. Maybe a relational conflict that you're trusting to see broken open and, and healing and restoration come. Maybe a financial struggle. Maybe a job situation. Maybe you're, wanting to, you're standing in faith to see God move in power upon our nation. Maybe there's the loss that you're trusting to see saved. Think about whatever situation you are facing right now. God has a way for that situation. And this is it. My presence, my closeness, my nearness will go with you, and I will give you rest. My presence, in your situation, God is saying, my presence, I I want to reveal myself to you, God is saying, in your situation. I want to show you my heart. I want to show you my way. I want to show you my will. I want to teach you about myself through the situation that you are facing. Not just my revelation, but my power is upon you. My hand is upon you. I've never lifted my hand off you. There is authority upon you by virtue of you being in Jesus, and Jesus is the name that is above every name. 
not just revelation, God is saying, not just power, but I want my glory to come upon you in the situation that you are facing. There is a distinctiveness about you. It's not by the way you act. It's about what is upon you, my anointing, my glory, my manifest presence is upon you because you are my people and my ways for your situation are that I bring revelation, that I move in power, and that I allow my glory to come upon you. And because of that, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Every situation we face, if we follow God's way, we are led into a place of rest. Every situation, if we follow God's way, which is his, which is his presence, we are led into a situation of rest. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. God's heart is that this be made possible through the person of Jesus. That's what Jesus came to do. John the Baptist in John chapter one says this. He sees Jesus and he says, there is the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And then he goes on to say, and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And we think, oh, baptize, that's so sweet, that's so nice. Little sprinkling of the Holy Spirit upon us. No, no, no. That's not what it means. It literally means to be plunged into. Steve Cassio, where, yeah, I saw him here earlier, he sent me this outstanding uh, a little video clip on, 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 um, from Facebook. And it's this guy in a church. He's, he's like built like, he's like my heart, but he's actually built like a you know, massive guy. He's the pastor of the church. And he was baptizing people um, in water. And they would be standing there like all innocently. And most of us think of baptisms, you know, like, okay, we, I'm gently going to kind of lower you down into the baptismal water and then gently bring you up. This guy stood here. So imagine the guy being baptized is there. He's got his back to the water. And this pastor would literally run and like fly like at this guy and, and like football tackle him into the water. Like, okay. I don't want you ever to forget that. John the Baptist says, Jesus will plunge you into the Holy Spirit. Jesus will plunge you and me into the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to football tackle us and take us into the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, friends, is not a little bit of pixie dust to give us a, a, good, a, a good kind of attitude for the day. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the manifest presence of the God who spoke creation into being, living inside of me completely and absolutely and finding a way to, to bubble up from within and, give, and, 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 be, and be expressed in everything that I do. The manifest presence of God lives within us because we, are, we should be, if you haven't been, I want to say we should be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's God's heart for us. That's, God, that's what God wants us to do. John 17, this incredible prayer that Jesus prays. I've got a couple more minutes and then I'm done. John 17, Jesus prays this prayer. He says to, he says to the Father, he says this. This is incredible. I have given them, speaking of us, I have given them the glory that you gave me. 
Now think about that. I have given them the glory that you gave me. So the glory that Jesus is speaking about is a glory that the Father gave to Jesus. So it cannot be the glory that Jesus has because he's the eternal son of God. He always has been the eternal son of God. God never gave him that glory. I would argue that the glory Jesus is speaking about is the glory that Jesus had by virtue of being, of being able to access the presence of the Father through the ministry of the Holy Spirit while he was here on earth. The Holy Spirit gave Jesus a, a, an access into the presence of the Father. And that glory, Jesus is saying, he gives to us. That they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. So that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You see, in the Father's presence, there's a couple of things that happen. I'm quickly going to share this. In the Father's presence, firstly, we learn to love one another. In the manifest presence of God, we learn to love one another. Jesus says, we are one We are one, just as the Father and the Son is one. Complete, total, absolute unity. Theological differences fall by the wayside. Whether you speak in tongues or whether you don't speak in tongues falls by the wayside. Color, education, race, social upbringing falls by the wayside. When we come into the presence of the Lord, we stand shoulder to shoulder on equal footing at the foot of the cross. When we come into the presence of the Father, secondly, we know that God loves us. Jesus says in verse 23, I have loved them even as you have loved me. You see, in the presence of the Father, it is my conviction, in the presence of the Father, many things happen, but the greatest thing that happens every time is we are absolutely convinced of the Father's love for me and you. That is the one thing God will do over and over and over again. Remind us of his love. Remind us of his love. Remind us of his love. But then thirdly, God shows the world his love through us. Then, look at verse 23. Then, once Jesus has given us this glory, then the world will know that you have sent me. There is something incredibly powerful about being a a believer, a son or a daughter of the Lord Most High, being filled with the Holy Spirit, having Jesus on our hearts and Lord of our lives. Something incredibly powerful about that. But there's something even more powerful. When multiple sons and daughters come together as a community, as a family, as a temple or a building, in which God dwells by his spirit. Ephesians chapter two says that. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which the Lord lives by his spirit. See friends, the gathering with God's people in God's presence to lift praises to God's son is the thing that God desires more than anything. It's the foretaste of heaven, and that's exactly what church should be like every Sunday. 
three quick applications and then I'm done. I want to encourage us all. This week, I want to lay a challenge at our feet again this week. I want you to pray these prayers this week. I want you to ask God these questions this week. Number one, I want to encourage us to become increasingly aware of the presence of God. Pray, ask God, Lord, show me your manifest presence. Show me when I'm going to work your manifest presence. Let's ask God to become increasingly aware of his presence. Secondly, I want to say, be expectant for God to move. Be expectant for God to move. Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. Help me to have faith. Help me to have courage. Help me to, to, to trust that, 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 that you will move. Show me, Lord, that you want to move. I, I want to be expectant, Lord, that I will see you move. And then thirdly, I want to say, be available for God to move through you. Be aware, be expectant, be available for God to move through you.